morning, church. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 16 this morning. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8 this morning. I doubt that many of you would know the name of Stuart Moffat. There would be really no reason that you would know this name. His father lives in a small English village called Holford, and he did, like many of you in the sanctuary did this past week, maybe even yesterday, big Easter egg hunt. So he organized the Easter egg hunt in their small English village, and uh, the kids scattered across picking up eggs. It was adjacent, the open field where they had the Easter egg hunt, it was adjacent to a pretty busy street, so a lot of care was taken to make sure the kids didn't wander too close to the traffic there in the street. It comes to an end, and all the kids are kind of gathering back together, looking to see their prizes that they received in the midst of this Easter egg hunt. And he noticed that there was a little girl, maybe three, four years old, that was still uh, out close to the road, a little too close. So he immediately walks over to this young little girl and notices that she seems to have found another egg. He was frustrated at this revelation because he thought to himself, did I not tell everyone not to hide any eggs that close to the road? But he was sure that she had found one. She was standing right on top of it. A little peculiar because the egg, as she was standing upon it, did not crack. So he got a little bit closer to her and noticed that as he kneeled down to see the egg that she was standing on that had this odd texture to it, this this rough and rugged kind of shape to it. And to his horror, he realized that this little girl was standing on top of a live, fully functional World War II grenade. Surprise. Yeah, happy Easter. So there, yeah, so, oh, so carefully, carefully, he begins to gingerly take her off this grenade back away. They called in the bomb disposable uh, disposal unit to destroy in this uh, controlled uh, explosion to, to make sure that no one got hurt. And this small village, as you could obviously matter, imagine, was a chatter with their explosive find on that Saturday before Easter. If we're going to be honest, there's no one in this room on Easter Sunday that wants to be surprised with anything. But we like Easter to be predictable. All of us in this room, we, we really function best under Easter when everything is predictable. So some of you are here today and you've dressed up your children and maybe even to their chagrin. They didn't want to wear that and tuck in that, but you said we're going to have a wonderful Easter Sunday. Be quiet and say yes, sir. You don't, want Easter, you don't want Easter to be a time of surprises. You want predictability. And so many of you in this room, you know exactly where you're going to go, and you know exactly what time you need to be there for your Easter meal. You got your pictures planned. Maybe you've already taken your pictures here. Everything needs to be predictable for us to really enjoy Easter. And what we can miss in our Easter Sunday predictability is the explosive meaning of Easter for you and for me, for all of us that are gathered here this morning. You see, that first Easter Sunday surprise found in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, it 
reminds us that everything changes when that tomb is empty. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8 reads, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I think it's helpful for us just to be reminded that that first Easter Sunday was not a predictable Sunday. There's nothing about this story that gives us any kind of frame of reference but surprise and shock and terror and amazement and wonder and befuddlement by what was going on when they got to the empty tomb. It it all seems fairly predictable to us 2,000 years or more away from the empty tomb here, but for those original Those original witnesses of the empty tomb, it is full of surprises. And if we have ears to hear, you will hear those same surprises in your life and in my life this morning. Notice first, the first surprise, that God's wonderful surprise were the first Easter witnesses. In verses 1 through 3, you have that early Sunday morning that Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome, they come bearing spices This would have been their final act of veneration. This is their final act of devotion to what they assume is going to be a lifeless corpse of Jesus. There is no anticipation whatsoever in what they think they're they're going to encounter. There's no hop in their step. There is no frame of reference that they have to think that he is not going to be in the grave. They're so grief-stricken in this gospel account here that they don't even take the time to bother with the detail of how are we going to get the stone. These three women are not able with their, their strength to push away the stone, to pull the stone away here. And so they haven't even got around to the details of how they're going to actually get inside of that tomb. And so the first surprise was they show up and the stone had been rolled away. The next surprise is they walk in and here, as the gospel account tells us, they entered and they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they again, surprise, they're alarmed. Church history An understanding of Genesis to Revelation helps us identify a comparison to the other gospel accounts of the resurrection stories. Gives us the identity that this is not just a young man that happens to be walking by and sees a stone that is rolled away. But because of his dress and his address, his dress and his address, that we know that this is an angel. Now we have all these preconceived ideas of what an angel should look like. And we have these romantic images of wings and uh, Philadelphia cream cheese kind of commercials. That's not, that's not how the Bible talks about angels. 
You open up Genesis and, and they, 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 they walk among us. And, and the book of Hebrews talks about entertaining angels and we don't even know it. There, there's a sense in the book of Daniel talks about angels having a, a resemblance to us. So, so the wings, no, 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 no. Not all the time. By any stretch of the imagination. Not the little cherubim. The cute little cheeks here. There is a young man who we know to be an angel because of his dress. He's wearing a white robe because of his address and the knowledge that he has. I know who you're looking for. He's not here. He gives them the first directions to go and find the disciples and tell them where they are supposed to go. So this is an angelic messenger who surprises these three first century witnesses of the original resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this passage here, not only do we see a surprise that the tomb is empty, the stone has rolled away, there's an angelic messenger who is greeting these three, but we also are surprised by the three evangelists who are commissioned to go and share that resurrection story. Now this might not be all that surprising to you. And it very well may be, that there's only a few of you in this room, but I know that there is somebody in this room who is wondering, did any of this actually happen? And boy, we better, we better understand, did this happen? Because as Blake said in the welcome, if, if that tomb did not have the stone rolled away, and if Jesus was not raised by the Father, then we need to do something else on Easter Sunday. So there's some of you in this room, and I think it's, it's helpful that you're here, and I'm so glad that you're here, but you're wondering of the historicity and veracity of this story, and you wonder, I wonder if this is not just a cover-up, and first century, well-intentioned Jewish followers of that Jesus created and concocted a story that has been passed down from one generation to the other generation. And I, I wonder if you're here and you're, you're wondering that. And I just think you need to understand that in that first century world, the worst people that could have been the original voice pieces of the resurrection, the, the worst people that you could have had as the first witnesses of the empty tomb are these three women that are coming. Now, why? I don't say this is a sexist statement in that first century world. If there was a, a criminal case that occurred and the only witness was a woman, that that case would be thrown out because a, the weight of the witness could not reside in a woman's testimony in that world. More than that, when you listen, listen and you think about what rabbis would say, rabbis had a saying that, that went this way, sooner let the words of the law be burnt than delivered to women. So if you were going to invent a first century story of a resurrection, the very people that you would not have as that original evangelist for the empty tomb are the very ones that we read. And it is one of these ways that we hear God saying, surprise, Surprise! Do you, don't be surprised, though, because the whole book of the Old Testament is this wonderful prelude of the amazing surprises that he has in store for us that finds its exclamation point in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we shouldn't be all that surprised. God says, I'm going to make, in the book of Genesis, a great nation. And I'm going to pick a couple 
to be the father and the mother of this great nation. And the couple I'm going to pick is a barren senior adult couple. Surprise. 20 years later, they have their son by the name of Isaac. 20 years later, God's way of saying, surprise, your timetable was not my timetable. Surprise. That nation, it grows, it is numerous, it comes under Egyptian captivity. Who is going to be the voice piece to go to Pharaoh, this tyrannical leader, and say, set my people free? Well, surprise of all surprises that God would choose a mumbling, stuttering murderer by the name of Moses. That nation is going to be unified. It's going to have a king. That king is going to fall. There has to be another king. And the prophet comes to this dad by the name of Jesse. And Jesse shows all of his children, all of his sons. They all worked out. They all played linebacker for the local high school. These are big, robust kind of young men. And then all of a sudden, the prophet says, I see this one, I see this one, I see this one, I see this one. But this is not the king. And he said, well... David's out back, sort of the run of the litter, shepherd David, surprise. And here we have the story of God's eternal son coming to the earth, dwelling among us. And of all those who could be his mother, he would choose a penniless peasant, embroiled in a small town scandal, be the mother of our Savior. Surprise. You see, the resurrection is just the crescendo that ultimately has, has been building and building and building to this point to show us at the end of the day, God is in the surprise working business. But all of us, most of us, I, I dare say none of us really like to be surprised. I mean, do you like to be surprised? I mean, when you get down to it, to be surprised is to place yourself in a place of real vulnerability. If someone has surprised you, that means that you were not in the know and you were not in control. If you're surprised, you are not in the know and you are not in control of the situation. And when you get down to it, a lot of us, if we're going to be honest, we want control and we want knowledge. We want control. And we want knowledge. And God's in this wonderful surprise working business and he desires to work in your life and in my life. But to work in your life, you must admit that you are not omniscient, all-knowing, and you're not omnipotent, all-powerful. But you submit to the all-knowing, omniscient, to the all-powerful, omnipotent God, and you say, I will trust you and I will obey you even when I don't understand where you are leading. I'm open to your surprises. It's been years back when we had two boys. We have three now. So this is seven or eight years ago, and we had an Easter egg hunt one uh, Saturday afternoon. Maybe it was a Sunday afternoon. I, the details elude me here, but I remember it real well because our boys, the two oldest, were old enough to sort of begin to understand the real meaning of Easter. It was more than just candy and those kinds of things for them. And so Danielle had this elaborate Easter egg hunt in the backyard, and the boys came and other neighbors came and she scattered them out and she said, okay, there is one egg that's the golden egg. And if you find it, 
you will find a ticket to Willy Wonka's. No, she didn't say that. But uh, <laughs> one egg, that's the golden egg that is unlike any other egg, and it holds the most important surprise. So off they go. I mean, they found the pink eggs, they found the blue eggs, the yellow eggs, the green eggs, but, but all the kids were looking for the surprise golden egg. Finally, one of our boys found it, kind of held it up. All the kids surrounded him, swarmed him, waiting for him in great anticipation to open the egg. He opens it, and to his dismay, it was completely empty. So Danielle, teachable moment. Says boys and girls, the reason it's empty is because there's an empty tomb. Jesus isn't there. To which my son took the golden egg and threw it over his shoulder and said, Why does everyone else get money? <laughs> he, he didn't say it in this moment. But as a five-year-old, he expressed what many preacher's kids feel in that place of despair. Why does my entire life have to be a sermon illustration? Why? Why can't we just be normal? Normal. Now, there's a sense in which this illustrates the very point that I'm saying here. Is that there, there are times where our surprises are not on our terms. There are times where surprises must be that someone else is more knowledgeable and someone else is in control in a way that be, is beyond our grasp. And for you and for me, the question is, are you open to God's surprise in your life? Now, notice that the gospel narrative is not this. Three women that God the Father meets and consults with. Okay. Salome, Mary, we need to make a decision. I've been pondering this. We have three options Help me choose what you think is best. Notice that that is not the gospel story. The gospel story isn't that God is in need of your opinion and my opinion, and he is flux, uh, fluctuating between one uh, decision and another decision, and he's waiting on us to help him make up his sovereign will and his sovereign mind. And as soon as you go halfway, he'll meet you halfway. Notice that that is not the story of the Bible. That is not the story of the gospel narratives. That is not the story of the resurrection. The story that we read about this Easter Sunday is the story of an omnipotent God who is all-knowing, all in control, who has a plan that is beyond the purview of these three first century witnesses. And my question is, are you open to his surprises in your life? Or are you here today saying, God, I want to be in control. I want to be all-knowing. I want to be the pilot and captain of my life. There can be only one there can be only one Lord of your life. And the question is, have you exalted I, me, myself, as the captain of your life? Or are you humbly trusting him, knowing that he is good and that he is in control and that he is all-knowing, even when you can't see beyond the horizon of where he is taking you, but you trust that no matter where the destination is, you know that he is a good God who is in control and desires your will to be for his glory and your good. Do you, do you believe that today? 
Notice with me in this passage here that God's wonderful surprise is the first Easter witnesses. Notice also with me that God's wonderful surprise is the destination of his first appearance. Verse 7 again in your copy of God's word reads, But go, the angelic messenger says, tell his disciples, Jesus' disciples, and Peter. Notice the notation there of Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And my Easter question for all of us today is, why Galilee? Why Galilee? Again, if you're a PR firm, if if you're a marketing firm that is, is given the opportunity to say, Jesus is alive, we've got to get this news out, how are we going to share this news Where would you go? Well, you might say, it might be wise for you to go back to the palace, to go back to to Roman power and tiptoe behind Pilate and tap him on the shoulder. And when he turns around, it would be very convenient for you to say, surprise. Or you could say, you know something, what would be really wise for you is to go to the Sanhedrin, to go to the high priest, to be able to appear before them there in Jerusalem and say, just as the Old Testament had said, so here I am. Just as I said in my teaching, so here I am. But he doesn't do that. He leaves Jerusalem to go to Galilee. Why Galilee? Why not be in the spotlight of, of, the, of the religious center of existence in that Jewish world? Why Galilee? Well, Galilee is Jesus' hometown. Galilee is the hometown of 11 of the 12 disciples, except for Judas. Galilee is the place where he preached the Sermon on the Mount. Galilee is the place of the Mount of Transfiguration. 25 out of 32 of the miracles of Jesus, you know where they occur? They occurred in Galilee. When Jesus says, go back to Galilee, when the angelic messenger says, go back to Galilee so that I can appear or Jesus can appear to you, what he is saying is, is go back to that place where you first met Jesus. Go back to that place where you first saw Jesus' work. In in some respects, Jesus is giving those disciples a reset button. And boy, did they need it. He says, don't only are the disciples going to meet Jesus there, but he, he signals one disciple by naming Peter. Well, of course, if you've been following along in this story, you would notice the the significance of him saying, all the disciples are going to be there and Peter, and Peter. Jesus wanted those messengers, those three females, to be able to say the name of Peter because Peter, just days before, had three times denied that he knew Jesus He said, no, I don't know him. And there was a young lady who said, I think I've seen you with him. He says, no, I don't know him. And again, others said, I I think you do know him. I think you're one of the disciples. And with with all of the gusto that he could gather up and garner up in that moment, he said, no, I don't know him. And as strong of language that he could use, he denies him three times. And so here it is, the the first words that he's going to hear that his Savior is resurrected is the words that he, Peter, wants to meet you. And he wants to meet you at the place that he called you. He wants to meet you at the place where he first called you to follow him and to put down your nets and to come after him and be his disciple. It was Jesus' way of giving Peter a reset button. And you know something in this room, all of us need a reset button button. 
There's not a single one of us in this room who hasn't betrayed our Savior. There's not a single one of us in this room who hasn't sinned and, and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a single one of us in our thoughts, in our actions, in our words, who have not done things that separate us from a holy God. Every one of us in this room have a problem, and that problem is us, our sin, our failures. There are a travesty to a holy God, and the story of Easter is this story, that Jesus loves you enough to call you even though he knows the worst thing about you. What's your picture of Jesus? What's the image of Jesus that you have in your mind? It very well may be that the image that you have in your mind is an image from a book or it's an image from an experience of growing up. And the image is that Jesus is an angry judge who sees you again in his courtroom and his tone with you and his words to you are, I've given you so many chances. And is this what you do? Is this what you do with forgiveness? You, you do it again, you sin again, and you're back before me. Get out of my presence. I never want to see you again. And there's some of you in this room this Easter Sunday that this is what you feel. You feel as if you have wandered too far. You feel that you've said things that you can't take back and there's no forgiveness for you. Well, forgiveness is good in the abstract. It will never be true for you personally because you have gone too far. And you need to hear that the whole story of Easter is that Jesus came to tell you, meet me in Galilee. That I desire a relationship with you. That my resurrection is for everyone and anyone who is messed up. That my resurrection is for everyone and anyone who has said things that they wish that they could take back. For everyone and anyone who has enough water and the bridge of life that has, it has really just washed it away. And there are relationships that are left undone. Pain and hurt. That his resurrection is for you. It's for you that no matter your past, there is hope. That's the message of Easter. No matter your sin, there is hope. No matter your guilt, there is hope. No matter your shame, there is hope. That if you today, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've thought, no matter what you've seen, no matter what you've said, that if you today would put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, that you too will be forgiven. Just like those original disciples who had gone away, who had fled from him, had deserted him and gone the other way, so he desires a relationship not only with them, but he desires that relationship with you. Would you today, this Easter Sunday, look not to your past, look not to your sin, look not to your failures, but look to your Savior and the glorious good news that he has paid it all for you. This is the hope of Easter. And it's a hope that no matter where you've been, no matter your pain, there is hope for you today. Do you believe that? You know, our pains can be some of those things that we hold on to, that we say, yes, Easter is for forgiveness. But can Easter really give me hope in the midst of the pain that I'm facing? Many of you are familiar with the work of Rick Warren, the pastor, Orange County, California. His work 
and the purpose-driven life. Uh, some of you are familiar that he and his wife Kay went through what no parent, no father, no mother ever want to experience, and that is the burial of their son after battling depression and mental illness and ultimately taking his life at the age of 27. And so Rick Warren and Kay Warren have given their life in many ways to address what oftentimes is not addressed in the church, to give hope in the midst of true pain. And he's asked this question, how have you made it? How have you kept going in the midst of your pain? And this is what he said, the answer is Easter. You see, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus happened over three days. Friday was the day of suffering. Friday was the day of pain. Friday was the day of agony. Saturday was the day of doubt. Saturday was the day of confusion. Saturday was the day of misery. But Easter, that Easter Sunday was a day of hope and joy and victory. And here's the fact of life, Warren says. You will, I will, we all will face these three days over and over and over in our lifetime. And when you do, you will find yourself asking three fundamental questions about Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Number one, what do I do in the days of my pain? What do I do when I find myself in Fridays? Second question, how do I get through the days of doubt and confusion? How do I move past Saturday? And the third question is, is how do I get to the days of joy and victory? And Warren says, and Mark's gospel says, and this word says, and the testimony of this church seated in these pews say, the answer is Easter. Easter is the answer. Easter means, in the words of J.R.R. Tolkien, that Jesus makes every sad thing come untrue. No matter your pain, no matter your difficulty. And I know that there's some of you in this room that have wept for loved ones whose time on this earth is way too short. And you have hope even in the midst of tears. Why do you have that hope? Because there's hope in Easter. That you've longed for the restoration of relationships that have gone awry, promises that have been broken, words that you wish could be left unsaid. But here's your hope, and that hope is Easter And as your pastor, one of the great joys I have is to have a ringside seat of people in this very room who have gone through unspeakable tragedy, who've gone through pain and difficulty. You've walked your own Friday. You've walked your own Saturday. But there's joy and there's hope and there's love. Why? Because there's Easter. Because no matter the Fridays of your life, Sunday is coming. And Sunday is here. So I'm here to remind you. I'm here to remind you of the glorious news of Easter Sunday. That no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've strayed, you can always come home to Galilee. That if you today would put your faith in the finished work of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you would have hope in the forgiveness of your sins. And if you're here today and there's confusion in your life, there's doubt in your life, there's pain in your life, Easter, my friend, is for you. This is what we celebrate this morning. We celebrate the hope of Easter, God's wonderful surprise that reminds us because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life 
is worth the living simply because he lives. Christ's church is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let us pray. Today, Lord Jesus, we celebrate the finished work of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it is paid in full, that it is finished, that in the face of death, we have hope. In the face of our sin, we have hope. In the face of anything and everything that comes our way, we have hope because you've defeated through the resurrection of your son. You've defeated death. You've defeated sin. And so I pray that each and every one of us in this room would look to you. We would look to you for the sole sufficiency of our life today and all of our eternal life and the tomorrows to come. You are enough because you have paid it all and you've defeated it all in and through your son's work. And so today we celebrate, today we say hallelujah. Praise you, God, for this wonderful hope that we have in the midst of Easter, the wonderful surprise of the empty tomb. It's in your name we pray, the resurrected name of Jesus Christ. Amen.